The world of sports continues to grow in the world of crypto and NFTs, but where did these integrations start? They started with arenas. Whether you go to Madison Square Garden or the former Staples Center, which is now Crypto.com Arena, you are inundated with advertising from the moment you enter to the moment you exit. We're going to examine where that came from, why that's there, and why you're worth so much money. This is the Minor Leagues. Welcome back to the Minor Leagues, the show where we talk about the intersection of sports and crypto. What was once not a union at all continues to grow every single day. We've got our resident sports expert, my colleague, Matt Ryan. And I'm not going to call myself an expert, Matt, but I know a lot about crypto, okay? Not to brag. So Important together, crypto human, Nathan <laughs> Simone. Together. We're going to move on up to the majors, all right? We may be in the minor leagues right now, but together we are going to work our way up to the majors. Matt, thank you so much for the introduction because, you know, people may or may not know this. I live in beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado, and I was thinking about this before we started this show. We ended the last show talking about how sports and advertising is almost like crypto and advertising, and they have just Crypto and advertising is exploding. It's dependent on a regulatory structure, but sports has been this way for at least a couple of decades. I wanted to talk about the history of this. And in particular, I wanted to bring up a case of why so many like random brands seem to sponsor, I say random in quotations, seem to sponsor these places. And my example to get you started, Matt, because I know that once I get you going, you're going to be able to spin <laughs> a hell of a good yarn based on evidence, okay? I was driving by the Ball Arena here in beautiful Denver, Colorado. And Ball, in case anybody doesn't know, is the manufacturer of mason jars and other glassware, homeware products. Now, to me, Ball and a sports arena doesn't make sense. I tend to think of like, oh, sports arenas should be with sports stuff or sports related stuff. But as we know, Matt, that's not true. I mean, you've got master, you've got MasterCard, Visa, you've got anything almost but related to sports sponsoring these things. I'd love it if you could kind of educate us about when this started, you know, how it's ramped up and what it's kind of meant for sports. Please, Matt, take it away. So the idea of stadium partnerships and these naming rights have been a thing, I would say, going into the night, starting in the 1990s. Um, when you think of every major arena with limited exceptions, like Yankee Stadium, Madison Square Garden, and a few others, you have Invesco Field at Mile High. You have the Ball Arena. You have the AT&T Center, American Airlines Arena, these are integrated partnerships. These are naming rights deals. So they last over a period of time. The Staples Center was the name of that venue since it opened in 1998, I want to say, until the until this past year when crypto.com bought the rights out from Staples when they renewed the deal when they were when the deal was up and now for the next 20 years they will be paying a inordinate amount of money to to pay to have the rights to crypto.com arena and this kind of started in Los Angeles this started with Jerry Buss 
and the the Great Western Bank because Jerry Buss, who owned the Lakers, set up a deal with Great Western Bank to turn the Forum into the Great Western Forum. And that was kind of the impetus for that. And then going from there, we've seen it rise over the past decades, and it's been tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of time. And it's really defined when you're building a stadium, you are selling the rights to that to that venue. You are selling the naming rights. One of the biggest ones was the Dallas Cowboys. Their new stadium was initially Cowboys Stadium. But a lot of people like myself called it the Jerry Dome or Jerry World uh, after huh. Jerry Jones, the owner. Just a colloquialism because he built this massive palace dedicated to the Cowboys. They initially played, well, they played for the majority of their run at Texas Stadium. Had no naming, had no branding. But they signed a major deal with AT&T, and now that's AT&T Stadium. So anytime you see a new stadium being built, and it's a lot of, like, within the area. Like, Yum Brands, they're based in Kentucky. They're based in Louisville. That's the name of the arena in Louisville. It's the Yum Arena. Yum Center, I'm sorry. It's the, it was the KFC Yum Center. Now it's just the Yum Center. <laughs> and then you have the Smoothie King Arena in New Orleans, which is where the New Orleans Pelicans of the NBA play. Uh, the Superdome, which went over three decades without a naming rights holder, is now the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. And in Atlanta, there is Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which also oh, yeah. makes it confusing. <laughs> <laughs> But that's where it is when it comes to, to naming rights and stadiums. It's just another way to induce revenue out of a, out of a stadium. And, every, and it kind of integrates into every aspect of a game, of an event, of a broadcast. And you take a look at NASCAR as the impetus of that. I like to talk about things having a NASCAR model. And this is really when it comes to the jerseys on uniforms now in the in the NBA. I think we've brought this up before. Every single NBA uniform has a patch of a business. The Boston Celtics have GE. Uh, the Nets have a few different, uh, had a big one. I forget what it was, but they're all either local or major partners. I think the Clippers are Microsoft because Steve Ballmer, the current owner of the Clippers, was a longtime Microsoft executive. There's a lot of different places now where you can integrate sponsorship in the sports, especially sports on television. Every single moment that happens in a baseball game, and we talked about the the pitcher coming in and having a relief start in a minor league, having a rehab start in the local sports rehab being the advertiser for that game, you can literally market every moment of a sporting event, eventize it and commoditize it, and that's why investors are really interested because you take a look at how much it costs for the Super Bowl. Fox has the Super Bowl this year, and it seems like they're almost already sold out on advertising. And that goes for three, four, even more. I believe it's in the $10 million range now for a 30 to 60 second advertisement. Forgive me, Matt. Remind me when the Super Bowl is. Super Bowl will happen in February of this year at the conclusion of the oh. NFL season. That starts and started <laughs> after this episode of the minor leagues aired. We're taping this the day before the start of the NFL season. Rams versus mm -hmm. Bills is the Thursday night game. This will drop next 
Tuesday. So if you're looking forward to some NFL action, we'll be talking about that on the pod next week, or at least kind of breaking down some of the NFL business model. And the NFL really kind of was the impetus for this in terms of licensing. Pete Rozelle, who became the commissioner in 1960, uh, fighting a war against the AFL and also just fighting a war to be relevant against baseball, the real turn happened when Pete Rozelle took over because the Matt, they put NFL headquarters on Madison Avenue right in the middle of the marketing and advertising world. Pete Rozelle was a PR man for many years before becoming the general manager of the Rams and then ending up as the commissioner of the NFL. And he set up NFL licensing, which is why you see NFL jerseys in store, NFL merchandise, different team opportunities and things like that. It has been a very slow but rapid burn over the last 50 years to where every single facet of American life, and you could talk about this uh, across most of the developed world, why athletics are such a key economic driver. And that's not even just, you know, pro pro sports. You could talk about college sports, even high school sports in New Jersey, in Georgia, in Louisiana, in Miami, in Texas, especially Texas and parts of California, the high school football team or the high school basketball team are the economic drivers of a lot of these schools and have really propped up the prep school industry and which created academies like IMG Academy down in Florida. They turn into factories. These are de facto farms where you develop (laughs) athletes for college. You develop them for the pros. You develop them for the next level. It's completely astroturfed the process for elite athletes because now they're playing around another elite athlete. And that's kind of precipitated into pro sports, especially in basketball, where you see players going to other teams like LeBron did about over a decade ago. That makes me feel old as shit. Uh, but the big, the initial big three, LeBron, James, Dwayne, Wade, well, the second big three, LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris Bosh, they all played with each other or knew each other from playing in the Olympics. And you're seeing that more and more across pro sports. And it's really brought this idea of the player empowerment movement, which is talked about a lot on the Dan Levitard show with Stu Gatz, a podcast that I listen to very frequently. And all of those things really play into the economics of sports. And there's so many, you go down such a rabbit hole because this industry is so vast and so nuanced, despite the Mm -hmm. fact that, that the, the very skin deep layer, like the, the, the dermis, of sports is competition. You put two sides against each other. They battle. Whoever walks out is the winner. But there's so many different ways to win. Dallas Cowboys have not won a championship in 25 years, but they're probably the most valuable franchise in sports right now because of the value of the franchise. And it goes into all those advertising deals. It goes into the real estate. It goes into the players. It goes into the image, the iconography. There's so many, the season ticket revenue base, the merchandising revenue. And that all goes back to the 1970s when there were half, if not less than half of the teams you now have in the NFL. There are 32 teams in the league. There were about 16 to 18 uh, at the dawn of the post-NFL AFL merger in the 1970s. So national games on TV, you weren't, you know, Seattle hadn't come around yet. That was in 76. Same thing with Tampa. You had two teams in Texas, two teams in New York City. 
one team in Buffalo. So you had like teams strewn out across the country and the big teams, the biggest teams would get the national coverage, whether it's Monday night football or getting the most regional households in, in on CBS or NBC. And that's why there were so many people who were Dallas Cowboy fans who are a certain age, San Francisco 49ers, Pittsburgh Steelers, Green Bay Packers, Oakland, now Las Vegas Raiders. That's where a lot of that comes from because that was the access point for a lot of people. And there weren't as many teams, but there was a lot of airtime to fill. Crazy, man. I mean, I feel like I've, I've learned so much already. I'm, I, I've downloaded the information and now my brain has the little progress bar where it's like processing, processing, <laughs> processing. Remind me, Matt, because I wanted to get back to a couple of things. You mentioned the Dallas Cowboys being one of the most valuable brands, even though they don't win because they have all this advertising and this like this great uh, marketing brand ability. Uh, which team does De uh, does Mark Cuban own? Mark Cuban owns the Dallas Mavericks in the NBA. Ah, I knew. Okay. I got one part right. It was the Dallas, but it is not the right one. Never mind. Yeah, no, My he did. I don't think <laughs> no he'd, he wouldn't be allowed in the NFL. He's been barred from the MLB, owning a team in the MLB. He's tried to buy teams in Major League Baseball before, but he's been blocked from doing so. Uh, the NFL has a very strict ownership policy. Um, ah. The Denver Broncos, which are your hometown team, just went for 8.4 billion dollars. I want to say I'm Whoa. going off of memory <laughs> to the Walton family who owns Walmart. Uh, well, sure. members of the Walton family who own Walmart. Uh, Condoleezza Rice will actually be a member of the the management team. Uh, one of the owner members of the ownership team. Pardon me for the Broncos making her the first woman of color to be a part of a major NFL ownership group. See, and that's so fascinating to me, Matt. You just talking about like there's a management board of a football team and it goes for $8.4 billion. I'm like, to me, like the joke that I would make here is I'm like, all right, so it's a company that has a football team. <laughs> like that's that's basically the 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 football team is like is like, I don't even know, like 25% or maybe 50% of its product, and then the rest is everything that surrounds the football team. This is fascinating to me. Quick note, thank you for explaining that most of the sponsorships are local. So I was befuddled by why it was Ball Arena. I didn't realize Ball is out of Westminster, Colorado. That's a suburb of Denver. So that makes complete sense now. I just totally learned something new. So this is interesting because you said that not only are there strict ownership requirements for some of these leagues for some of these teams, the reason why I brought up Mark Cuban is Mark Cuban is big into crypto. And I have to believe that anybody of a significant net worth is eventually also going to be big into crypto. And I wonder, with the regulations around crypto, uh, it kind of segues into what we wanted to talk about next, which is crypto.com, which is a huge exchange, huge platform. They were going to sponsor a league, I believe it is, like a European league. You can explain that better, Matt. But they pulled out due to regulatory concerns. And this is odd to me because I think we discussed in the last episode about how, um, you know, it used to be, it may have used to have been like a little bit taboo to do like big alcohol advertising or sometimes tobacco advertising. Actually, I think those flipped. Let's go with alcohol advertising. And now it's just like, fine, the regulations have smoothed out to where it's okay. What do you think of this crypto.com situation? And do you think crypto is, is going that way to where, like, just give it, 
a couple years, maybe not even that. And you'll see the patches on the NBA. You'll see the logos on the race cars. You'll just see it go bananas. I'd love to know where you think this is going and what you think about them pulling out of this deal. Well, we're already seeing it here in the United States, Crypto.com Arena. We've seen a bunch of patches. Uh, if you go to a Met game at City Field, which I'll be doing twice uh, this week, uh, so I will be <laughs> anxious all week, uh, especially because <laughs> the Mets and the Braves are tied as we're recording this, so I want to drink heavily. But in America, it's easier. Um, in the in Europe, there are growing restrictions, and UEFA, the league we're talking about, is basically the governing body of all European football. It is the okay. U- UEFA Champions League. It's basically the the elite of the elite of European football. And with France having growing restrictions and France being such a major player in European and international football, it makes it so much harder because you have the Champions League, you have the UEFA Cup, you have so many different things within that sport that go country to country. And you have France, Germany, the United Kingdom, obviously, and all of those countries are having specific bugaboos and specific issues surrounding the legalization and kind of the law establishing governance over cryptocurrency, over NFTs. We're seeing this be, in terms of restrictions and tightening, a bigger problem in Europe than in the United States. And I think that might speak to where, you know, the different governments, different philosophies. And I think we're going to see a lot more restrictions here in the U.S. over the next few years. But it's not just affecting UEFA. It affected F1, too. F1 Formula One racing is a huge, a multi-billion dollar international product. And I think we talked about this on the show uh, last week or on the first episode. They completely, and we talked about this on the non-fungible news, they completely got rid of their France Grand Prix, one of their biggest races of the year, and are moving it to the and they're and I think they're replacing it with the Las Vegas Grand Prix, which launches in 2023, because they couldn't do crypto advertising, crypto sponsorship. Whoa, really? That they was one of the axed, prevailing reasons. They just axed the entire thing because obviously the amount of money that was going to come in from crypto advertising, the people who wanted to sponsor it, perhaps, uh, you know, investment by the racers themselves or the people that put on the event because they couldn't do it. They just pulled the plug. Well, it's a different racing team. So each team has a crew of racers who have Mm -hmm. different sponsors or they're sponsored by different brands. And this is the same thing in NASCAR um, that let's go. Brandon coin was a sponsor for a race car for a race car driver. I think that got pulled fairly quickly. Uh, I'll keep my politics out of that conversation. But when it comes to the economics of racing, all of these innovations are done by by creating sponsorship, by advertising. When you look at a race car, uh, take a look at a NASCAR, for instance. Mm-hmm. You have the major sponsor on the hood and on like the sides of the car, but then you have these other sponsors where at least you used to have these micro sponsors and you would see different advertisers darted throughout the car. And this is also a big thing in boxing and in MMA outside of the UFC because the UFC have a partnership with Crypto.com to where their logo alongside the Monster Energy logo for select fighters are the only advertisements allowed on the fight kits. 
It used to be <laughs> up until I would say seven or so years ago, maybe a little more recently, fighters were in control of what advertisers they would get their own advertisers to put on their their fight trunks to on their fight apparel. And that was a big economic driver for a lot of fighters and really sometimes made them more money than their show pay. And now that, that opportunity is squandered because the UFC have new uniform rules and everything is done through the UFC in terms of what you can wear while you're in the octagon, what sponsors are at the, are possible at the press conference they control everything you do regarding the event. Outside of the UFC, you can wear what you want, you can advertise who you'd like, but you can't use their platform to advertise your sponsors. And there's a huge argument about that in the MMA community because of the UFC paying fighters less than 50% of annual revenue. Sure. And, and you said... Real quick, you said that the only advertisers allowed are Crypto.com and Monster Energy Drink? On the fight gear, on the fight kits. Inside the Octagon, there are a litany of other sponsors inside the actual cage. But those are the two big name sponsors for the fight kits, alongside Venom, who make the fight kits. Interesting. Uh... You know, there's a joke in there about all you need is crypto and a monster energy drink, but like, for God's sakes, you need to eat a salad. Fruits and vegetables, <laughs> Matt. It's not healthy. It's, it's not healthy. Sound that like is, my roommate. That is so fascinating. That makes me think of, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but you know, I feel like I'm just throwing you chalk, Matt, and you're just filling <laughs> this blackboard with stuff. And I'm having to sit back and every so often, like every five minutes, I just want to pause you and I'm going to be like, is this on the test? Is this on the test? Because it's just it's just too much. It's too much information. It, so the little that I know about the UFC is that um, it is not uh, it's not Logan Paul that's in there. It's Jake Paul, I believe. Jake Paul's in the UFC. Jake no, Jake Paul is a boxer and is uh, partnered with Showtime, who own Bellator, which is an MMA league. Jake Paul will be fighting Anderson Silva, who is a UFC Hall of Famer, one of the greatest mixed martial artists of all time, who, after getting cooked uh, in the UFC, and mainly time in the sport, the sport passed him by because of a myriad of injuries. If you look up Anderson Silva leg break on the internet, you are not in for a good time. Uh, Ouch. But one of my favorite fighters of all time, one of the greatest mixed martial artists of all time, uh, is now a boxer, and he's actually become a very proficient boxer in a short period of time In you know, for fighters who are over 40 and are fighting random dudes, sometimes on the helipad of a card in Dubai. Uh, but Jake Paul and uh, his brother Logan got into boxing a couple of years ago. Logan was first. Jake came in second after his brother, but has become much more successful as an actual boxer than his brother. His brother did fight Floyd Mayweather last year. That did not go well. Logan uh, looked wow. like he, he was literally being held up by Mayweather at one point, but he is an actually pretty good professional wrestler. Like, he is not terrible in a 20 by 20 as a pro wrestler. But Jake is the actual boxer. He was actually supposed to fight at Madison Square Garden uh, in July. 
but that fight card got canceled after his initial opponent, Tommy Fury, couldn't leave the United Kingdom or there was some sort of contractual issue. Depends on who you talk to. If you do, you know, some quick research on a boxing scene.com or if you look it up on Bloody Elbow uh, or MMA Mania, you'll get a little bit more of an understanding on the nuances and politics around that issue. Uh, he was also supposed to fight Hasim Rahman Jr., but there was a weight cut issue uh, regarding that, so the card got postponed. Now he will be fighting Anderson Silva on, I believe, a Showtime pay-per-view in October. Interesting. Okay. Uh, where I was getting with that was, isn't um, the name comes to mind Dana White? Isn't Dana White a big guy in the UFC? Dana He's White like the is owner. the president of the UFC. He's a minority owner. He used to be one of the more majority owners before he and the Fertitta brothers who purchased the UFC in 2000 uh, sold to IMG, uh, pardon me, to Endeavor, which is one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. Gotcha. And But I thought that him and Jake Paul were like, either they, they were feuding. They, they are actively feuding. Yeah. They, they actively feud. Yeah. So that's why I thought Jake Paul was like in the UFC or connected to the UFC. Y'all, you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, that's why Matt's here. here. Interesting last question, because he follows me on Twitter. And when he followed me on Twitter, I was just like, hell yeah. Gary Goodridge, is he a boxer? Or is he an MMA? Gary Goodridge is a, in a uh, he's following you on Twitter? So to be fair, what? He, also he also follows 227,000 other people. Oh, okay. But because I he always I love his inspirational stuff. I love his logical. He does these tweets that are just like, bam, it's like a punch to the face with like some truth. And it's all just really common sense stuff. It's like, hey, bud, tomorrow's another day. Get up. And you're just like, hell yeah. It's just, but it's stuff that you like, you'll never get tired of hearing because you're just like, ah, I need to be reminded of that. Anyways, I would always retweet his stuff. And he followed me one day and I was like, oh my gosh, Gary Goodridge followed me not knowing who he was at all other than he was a big dude looked like he could kill somebody and that i think on his profile it said mma or box or something like that turns out he follows like i said he's got like if he has 300k followers he's got like 227,000 people that he follows seems like a nice dude i don't know anything about him that's why i wanted to bring that up i i became aware of him because of his like inspirational slash um, kind of life advice tweets. So yeah, who is he? <laughs> yeah, so Gary Goodridge is an iconic fighter from the early pioneer days of the UFC, but he's mostly known for his work in Pride, which at one point was the biggest mixed martial arts company on the planet Earth. They outpaced the UFC. They were based in Japan. Uh, Pride Never Die, best theme song in mixed martial arts. And... <laughs> He also fought for K1, which is the one of the bit was one of the biggest kickboxing brands in the world. I believe Glory has supplanted them just because of the level of talent they have in kickboxing. I used to work in combat sports, still do for uh, MMA Mania as a host, so you can watch me yell at my television once a month. But Gary Goodridge is a certified legend in the sport and is a popular personality in MMA. Uh, a guy that has got a lot of respect for just being a bad, bad, bad human. Yeah, he seems cool. I didn't really know much about him. Anytime somebody has a like a, a Twitter account where they're dispensing what I what I kind of see as like wisdom or life advice in tweets, 
not only will I retweet it, I'll just, it's a good use of my time to spend five minutes reading this. I don't need to deal with any of the other, just Twitter, I think is 95% nonsense in my opinion. So it was cool. And I would just retweet his stuff. Like it was at least a couple of times a week. And I don't know, maybe he noticed, maybe he's not even running that account at all, but Shout out to you, Gary. Now I know who you are. Very cool. I should probably go like watch one of your fights on. Yeah, on you YouTube should. Or something uh, like I'm, that. I'm looking at some of the fights here. Yoshiaki Yatsu would be a fun fight for you to watch. Uh, he fought one of the Nogueras. I think that's big. Yeah, he fought Big Nog in Pride. Uh, not not Alistair Overeem, but a different Overeem. Yoshiaki Yatsu, who was a pro wrestler. He oh, Noya Ogawa, another pro wrestler. Um, his fight against Igor Voichanshin, I believe, is good. But if you want to watch a banger of a fight, I believe on Pride 1, the first ever Pride, and I believe all of these are available on UFC Fight Pass. I'm not sure, but if you look on the internet, you might be able to find it. His fight against Oleg Taktarov, and also he fought in the old school, old school UFC where there were one-night tournaments. So he fought multiple times in one night against some of the angriest people to ever walk the earth. I bet. I can only imagine. I just saw that his nickname was Big Daddy, and he looks like if he punched you, there's just no coming back from it, even if you were a well-trained fighter. So the fact that that he uh, that he could dispense such sage wisdom, I think it was like he was like a civilized killer. So it was cool, <laughs> and it was um, and then it made me wonder too. I was like, why is he popping up? Because I follow mostly crypto or technology kind of based accounts. And I didn't know, I couldn't gather whether he was into crypto or not. You know, there's a lot of people in the fighting and sports community that because they have um, such a uh, kind of a big pool of wealth that they're always trying to divest away from, the, the traditional things were like real estate and they'd go into like a hedge fund or something like that. But now, um, and I remember we discussed this one time on Bytes, now you have fighters, like I'm thinking about that Brazilian um, that Brazilian woman fighter, I cannot remember her name. Chris Cyborg. They put a, I don't think it was her, but regardless, regardless, um, they're putting a significant amount of their wealth into Right, the, the UFC fighter. But uh, Chris Cyborg, who is currently the Bellator women's featherweight champion, I don't want to get the weight class wrong, but I'm going off of memory. Uh, she's also heavily involved in the crypto space and uh, has a few... Uh, crypto and NFT related partnerships. So MMA and crypto are kind of a natural, I, I think the audience is there. The Venn diagram is very, very, the, the crossover is very, very big. So yes. that mm -hmm. is an easy layup for the NFT and cryptocurrency industries to get in on that because it skews heavily male, skews heavy mm -hmm. 18 to 35, and there's a specific type of person who obsess over crypto and also obsess over mixed martial arts, and they kind of have the same genetic makeup. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of see that. A, a recent headline that I saw, um, even though I hadn't, I haven't paid attention to him in, in quite a while now, was you know was MMA adjacent, uh, which was Joe Rogan, who's a well-known commentator for the MMA. He's never fought in the MMA, and he was saying oh yeah, I own Bitcoin and I own this stuff. And that's not a new statement. He's actually owned Bitcoin for quite a number of years. But to your point, Matt, it's just, you know, you have somebody who's famous, you have somebody in these communities and they say, yeah, I believe in this asset. Yeah, I believe in this token. Yeah, I believe in this project. It's a, um, it's a form of organic advertising 
And I, I guess I'm still just wondering why, why it goes so well with sports. MMA is the MMA is the 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 one that stands out the most. But correct me if I'm wrong here, Matt. MMA is like not. I mean, it's, let's put it this way. Even knowing nothing about sports, I know that MMA is not as big as NF, the NFL, basketball, baseball, things like that. So I'm wondering, like, when's the critical mass to where, like, can you imagine if LeBron James came out and was like, oh, yeah, I buy Bitcoin. Maybe he has, and I just haven't paid attention. I, I believe it. he's gotten, I believe most, if not a majority of top NFL, uh, NBA players like Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony are in the NFT space through partnerships, weirdly enough, both with uh, alcohol brands, Dwayne Wade with Budweiser, Carmelo Anthony with a very elite wine club. Both of those stories we covered on the NFN earlier this mm-hmm. year, one of the early, some of the earlier episodes of the non-fungible news. But I do believe LeBron owns a, owns some crypto. He actually he plays for the Los Angeles Lakers, who play at Crypto.com Arena. So I believe that there is some interplay there. Uh, I th- Tom Brady uh, is involved with Autograph, owns a piece of an NFT business. The integration of elite athletes to NFTs and crypto. Serena Williams, who was in the news, just retired where has a loss at the U.S. Open kind of indicating her retirement from tennis, at least singles, uh, is her husband and her partnered on an NFT. Alexis Ohanian, one of the founders of Reddit, is very big in the NFT and crypto space. So this is, an, uh, yet again, another, and pardon the pun, layup for a lot of top athletes, a lot of top brands to integrate with one another and I don't think we're going to see a LeBron coin I don't think we're going to see like a Steph Curry coin but you know these partnerships are definitely going to be prescient over the next few years especially when the Oakland A's uh they're a big play in Major League Baseball in the AL West they play in the Oakland Coliseum which is dilapidated it has been dilapidated since the 1980s and wow it has rained Dookie water in that stadium. (laughs) There have been floods because of the pipes in that stadium because it was a dual purpose stadium. So it was used from April to January and most stadiums over the course of 50 years really can't sustain the amount of use the pipes get. Tens of thousands of people over the course of a hundred or so days maybe a little less, but those pipes are a problem. Like the, there's been raccoons in the, in the ceiling tiles. There have been ants in the broadcast boots and the Oakland A's are looking to move to a new stadium. And right now the, there's an alleged approved stadium that would be built in the Oakland area. Oakland has lost over the last couple of years, the Raiders to Las Vegas, the Warriors in the NBA have moved back over to San Francisco in Oracle Arena. And if you're a tech company right now, if you're a crypto company and you see this, there's an advantage for you to get involved with the Oakland A's and do a big splash to be the naming rights holder or even just to buy the team straight up. There's a lot of opportunities there. Like, I work in pro sports. I work for the A7FL. I run Catalyst Wrestling. And I can see all of these different branded partnerships that you can do to, it's in a rising boat, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And there's a lot of opportunities there. 
And I think we're going to see that happen more and more depending on not how the market's going to look between now and the end of 2022. I was about to say, it was like, as you were describing the Oakland situation, I was just like, so what you're saying is Oakland's looking for a sponsor. <laughs> it's like, it's like, Every other stadium is jacked up the wazoo from uh, Yum Brands to Ball Arena to it's like they got money coming out of their eyeballs. And here you're talking about Dookie Water. And I'm just like, somebody, uh, somebody, Home Depot sponsored, somebody put in some new pipes, please. I really liked the ant in the broadcast booth um, that you mentioned because that made me think about a tiny, tiny microphone going over a tiny, tiny broadcast <laughs> network to a, an amazing huge hill of ants the ants they've just got their own world so interesting yeah that would and that would be because oakland seems to have been passed over for these sponsorships probably because maybe the amount of renovation or because maybe they just need to build a new stadium in general you could elaborate on that maybe the upfront cost has been just not attractive when compared to other stadiums across the country for a lot of brands but to your point once the market returns and you are a significant crypto company like, um, gosh, like an exchange or a project, like a foundation, like the Ethereum Foundation or Algorand, or I mean, there's any number of things that could happen and you're up and the market is up and you can secure those rights. Yeah, I see the opportunity there. That is an interesting thing to ponder. I wonder, here's a question, Matt, before we get into fantasy sports, because something else that we want to talk about is I, I know nothing about fantasy sports. Um, I, you know, I obviously, the last sports-based video game that I played was NFL Blitz on the N64. And that was because you could tackle people up the wazoo and do illegal plays. So I kind of liked that it bended the rules a little bit. Here's my question before we get into NFT, uh, fantasy sports when do you think we have a professional sports team named after a crypto project or token now the names don't lend themselves well to sports teams you know usually sports teams are named after like animals or places or like dynamic things but crypto will continue to evolve there's a lot of creative crazy people in crypto at what point like I mean, Ethereum is a weird name if you think about it, but because it's a programmable currency that can do all this stuff, you're just like, oh yeah, it's Ethereum. But if I just told you, hey, Matt, I'm coming up with this computer program and it's called Ethereum, you're like, well, that's weird. So, so when, when, do we have, when do we have crypto so into sports that a basketball, tennis, football, I don't care what it is, when are they named after a crypto or a new project? What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, as someone who runs a league, well, helps run a league, I'm not the commissioner of the league, but as someone who works with the American Sevens Football League, I think it's more possible than ever. Um, yeah. I would not be opposed to teams being named. It, it's got to be a good name. like uh, Exactly, exactly. Like <laughs> the Denver Ether or the... Like, you can't call them the holdlers. That just doesn't roll off the tongue. I don't think that would sell that much <laughs> merch. But, you know, the Green Bay Packers were named after a meatpacking company. They were the Acme Meat Packers. Um, the New York Knicks were named after people who were from New York. 
Uh, the Los Angeles Chargers were named the Chargers because of Baron Hilton, the original owner's charge card company. <laughs> so I did they, not know that. Yeah, That's amazing. The, the, uh, there's a great documentary series called Full Color Football about the history of the AFL that illuminates that. Uh, there's a lot of different play, you know, teams that have been named after businesses or have, you know, connections to different things that were a communal trust in the city and, you know, going or just had some sort of weird connection because team names weren't really a thing as I get more comfortable, uh, until the, you know, 1910s, 1920s, uh, the advent of the 20th century and a lot of it was like what they were wearing. That's why the red socks are the red socks. <laughs> like literally yeah. they used to wear red stockings to the games. So they were the Boston red socks or the red stockings. They became the red socks later, but I think there's huge opportunities here and it's a, th and also globally, that's also a thing like in, or even here in the States, MLS, Red Bull, New York, Naming rights are completely, you know, they are they're operated by Red Bull. Red Bull's been doing that a lot in European soccer. I do I believe they do it in Switzerland. Not uh I I could be wrong on the location, but I know it's a part of European soccer. You see that in Japanese baseball, the Nippon Ham Fighters, the the different uh I can't remember the names of Japanese baseball teams and I'm pissed at myself. But the this ham has fighters, been I like that. this has been a part of global sports culture for a long time. I think that we definitely need people to drop in the comments below <laughs> what they would want a team to be named after off of. Cause there's like 17 and you know, the market's bearish. So a the, lot of crypto projects, the have easiest one's the miners. True, true. And that would fit well in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we literally have the school of mines up in golden. <laughs> uh, the, I've driven past, there's still abandoned mines off of the highway. Um, just what's happens, you know, in a gold rush state. I'm sure that that's also true in California. Um, yeah, the, and that's that's fascinating. I, I'm almost thinking about too about first of all, uh, I'm making you an honorary uh, commissioner. Uh, second of all, bring <laughs> back the red stockings. Um, and third of all, I was thinking about this globally about how you know in the U.S. we do have this this history of teams being named after, like you said. Um, like a company like the Chargers or what people are wearing or, or a meatpacking plant, but, but they're still mostly after like uh, mythical characters or animals or things like that. And how in, in Europe, I'm thinking about soccer because it's the only thing I can even reference. They're almost always just named after the location of where the team is. And I'm thinking of like Manchester United, right? And so it's like, well, the team's out of Manchester. And I guess that these boys are all united to play <laughs> football. Um, but how that, there's no reason that that couldn't change or that there couldn't be I, another supplementary team, you know, called the, called the, uh, oh gosh, I'm the Glasgow Miners. <laughs> but I think, so, so with that, when you talk about UK soccer or UK football, they are so firmly entrenched in their town, in their neighborhood, on their... It's a block-by-block block thing. Sure. So it's... Re I would find it really hard for a fan... Like, I would not try to do that in the UK. I would not try to do that in Paris or Germany. Uh, you've got Bayern Munich. You've got Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, you've got Barcelona. Like, they... 
are so closely attached to the cities. It's a part of their cultural identity. So it's a little harder in soccer to do that the way you, in in terms of naming the teams, they're an everything but kind of thing to where you yeah. can have every aspect of that commoditized and commercialized except the name of the team. That is something sure. that I feel like if someone tried to do that with like, let's say Chelsea FC who are currently in the process of being sold because of Roman Abramovich's ties to the Russian government. You buy it and you're like, I want to call them the Chelsea ethers. <laughs> the stadium will be burned down by lunch because they care at a level of zealotry that can only be count. If you think that certain people who believe in politicians in this country are banana pants in the way that they idealize their politicians. Sure. That's the same for British football. I can kind of see that. <laughs> and in the United States, it's more player based. Like when LeBron yeah. left to Miami and then back to Cleveland and then to LA, there were a lot of people burning jerseys. Like people did that with Tom Brady and a bunch of other things. It's stupid. Um, it's very stupid. <laughs> it's one of the dumb, you're, bur you're burning your, you could just sell it. You could sell it on eBay. You could just you could you, donate you, to Goodwill. Somebody yeah, could yeah, you, the burning on. it. Come on. Burning it just makes you look like an asshole. But sure. I digress. Um, when you look at the American market, it's a little more susceptible to that because commercialism is a bigger part of our culture. Not so yeah, much yeah. in the UK. Mm -hmm. And they're a more secular country. So yeah. that's their religion for the most part. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily think that it would be a good idea there mainly because of all the riots that could happen. Well, yeah. And to clarify, I mean, yes, exactly. What you're talking about too, with like Manchester and Chelsea, that would be the equivalent of like, I, I totally agree. Even as a non-sports fan, like you're like the Yankees, the, the New York Yankees are going to be the Yankees until the earth blows up. Like, it's just well, like, you can't, some things are sacred, even if you don't believe in them or pay attention to them and that is just one of those institutions i guess i'm more so thinking about like five ten years in the future when crypto is like really 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 gone mainstream and has so much money behind it somebody might like in a little town like uh like i know peter mccormack who has the um who has the uh podcast what bitcoin did he owns a football team in a little town in the uk called bedford which i've, I've never heard of but to be fair i haven't I haven't heard of many of the towns in the UK. Sorry, UK. I'll visit eventually. Um, so it would just be, I, I just would be thinking that people that have hodled or people that have been successful in crypto, the Europe is such like, a, it's it's just such a diverse and, and interesting place that I, I have to believe at some point, it'd be like a small town in France or Spain or Italy or I mean, there's just so many places. Maybe that'll come up and the way that they'll be able to attract talent is because they'll automatically be able to like pay salaries, get good people. I guess get good up and coming people that are young that also, you know, are crypto natives or things like that. I'm just spitballing here, Matt. We're just uh, <laughs> we're just going and in, going into the wind here. That is neither here nor there.
we're coming towards the close of the show, Matt. And the way that I really like to format these shows is I kind of like to do a little teaser at the end so that it, it not only proves that there's a good conversation that's going to happen next episode, but it's an easy way for us to remind ourselves that the intersection of sports and crypto is so vast. I mean, you talked about the levels of sports advertising, and I feel like sports and crypto is just going to continue to intertwine like that. So what I want to know about is fantasy sports, which is also going to include esports. I know nothing, literally zero, about fantasy sports other than they obviously happen online or not in real life, and that people are coaches, draft players, do this, that, and the other. To me, it was always connected to like betting, but I believe it's more than that. Could you please educate me from zero, just a baseline, what fantasy sports are? Well, I'm actually doing, uh, I just got a text from, I'm in a keeper's league. Uh, well, in a, I'm in a bet, I'm in a pool. I'm in a uh, elimination pool right now for the NFL. Uh, a group okay. of my friends growing up, we're in a pool. I've done fantasy sports since high school. Um, it is basically your chance to be a GM. So it's either daily fantasy where you pick a bunch of players. I, I, the conceit is you pick a bunch of players, their success is your success. So if you have Tom Brady on your team and he's great the whole season, you get a, you accumulate points for everything that they do. It's basically mining. The players are mining your points for you. And huh. You can win cash, you can win prizes, you can make people do ridiculous things, you can get them get tattoos, things like that. It's it's just a way of having giving fans ownership over their fandom. And I think it's done good and bad things for fandom to be honest. What so like what is so okay, that's a great explanation, but like is this just a group of people doing this informally because you know the rules, like a poker game? No, or is it's there like a multi... A, there's like a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So like, what is like the number one platform that you would like sign on or use to like participate in this? It's honestly a, a, a kind of a UI experience, a litany of different things. Like I've used ESPN, Yahoo, okay. CBS Sports. There's, there's so many different fantasy providers and with the advent of Daily Fantasy, DraftKings, FanDuel... Now they're more focused on overall sports betting, but daily fantasy is basically an extension of that to where you pay a certain amount of money, you you enter a pool, you play against a bunch of guys. If you get if your players do the most better good, you get the cash or the most cash. Interesting. So like any company that is involved in broadcasting sports or syndicating sports or has a sports-adjacent business, probably has some way to participate in a fantasy league. Yes. And, you know, depending, you know, sometimes there's official partnerships, sometimes there's not-so-official partnerships, like the like ESPN has it. The NFL does their own fantasy. NBA does their own fantasy. Uh, I believe Bleacher huh. Report, the NHL, every major sports league have their own fantasy leagues that you can set up for, sign up for, but, you know, there's a bunch of other businesses that do it as well. And I've been doing some research on this as well for the A7FL because the amount of stats that you need, it's a very meticulous thing. It is much like 
Bitcoin mining and the fact that you need all of this data and you need mm -hmm. to codify this data. You need to – this data continues to change. You need to rapidly continue updating it. You need to put processes in place. There needs to be code. There needs to be a system. There needs to be a logic to it. There needs to be a brain to how this information gets processed, put out, and developed and going from there. And it has, the gambling and fantasy are very tied in that way. Um, yeah. And do you know how fantasy sports got started? No, I, I was just about to say your analogy though to Bitcoin mining is great because I was my first thought was I was just like you need to have a 100% reliable source for this information because if somebody changes a statistic even by one minuscule and everybody goes along with it, it could screw up the entire thing in somebody else's favor, which is totally analogous to Bitcoin. So I assume that the statistics that they're pulling from are from the leagues themselves through these ancillary services because yeah. they're like the final arbiter of truth makes sense but yeah, no there's, I did there's not also live there's statisticians there's live stats there's different things like you go by the stat lines like there's there's so many different things in place for the major sports leagues to get stats get info that stuff kind of gets processed now very in real time so there are different companies like ESPN, Elias Stats Bureau, Sports Bureau. There are people who who hold, you know, basically own and have ownership of, I said own and ownership. I was trying to think of another word because I thought I was smart. I'm not. Uh, have this, have the cottage industry of processing stats and putting stats out there and processing stats in real time. The, so the idea of fantasy baseball Fantasy baseball came first, and it was called Rotisserie League Baseball because the first team, the first league, started in a restaurant in New York called La Rotisserie, and it was a group of people who just started and kind of created the map, the rules, the framework of fantasy sports. What was valued, what wasn't valued, and that, that has changed over the years as the stats in baseball, their value have changed. So... ERA and strikeouts and all these other things become important. OPS, which is a relatively recent stat, which is slugging percentage and batting average combined is more important than your batting average. I'm sorry, your on-base percentage and your slugging, not your batting average. So your OPS and your slugging equal uh, OB, I'm sorry, on-base percentage, their OBP and their slugging percentage equal their OPS. I just recently figured, I was recently told that because I was, confused i was kind of out of the loop on the major stats in baseball and then i saw that i was like huh well i guess that makes sense it's a conditioning thing the more you get used to it the the less confusing it'll be uh it's like swimming nude it's weird but you get used to it uh <laughs> but that's kind of that's exactly what it's like <laughs> <laughs> getting a little getting a little punchy uh but <laughs> I think that we can go more in depth on the major players, uh, the different use cases. We can see uh, DraftKings getting into this market. So rare is getting into this market uh, with the NBA. Uh, they also are in business with the MLB and with some soccer leagues. I believe uh, it's not UEFA, but it's a, it's some pretty big players in European soccer. Uh, DraftKings is partnered with the NFLPA for their Rainmakers project, which is a daily fantasy game or fa a fantasy game in general for with the NFL Players Association. So next week we can dive a little bit deeper on that and go through that and kind of figure out some of the use cases. And I can tell you some more pointless trivia. Well, 
it's not pointless, Matt. And you said that you weren't smart, but I mean, you know, come on, who's educating who here? I, I, I thought that it was interesting because so esports to get a little bit more meta, esports are people playing electronic sports uh, of all sorts and types. And before, I mean, there's just so much we go into there. You may not know this, but you'd be the person to ask about this. Are there people that are doing fantasy sports off of esports? Yeah. No, I, I think that those are businesses too. I'm not, I'm not as entrenched in the esports world, but there sure. has to be something dealing with that in some form or function. Uh, I think that esports is still a nascent industry. So uh -huh. I don't know what the protocols are for specific esports teams in terms of gambling. Uh, if you look back in the history of, uh, well, recently we had a, a an all-out fist fight breakout in Major League Baseball because of what somebody did in a fantasy league, a fantasy football league <laughs> the year before. Players were suspended. It was a whole thing. Mike Trout, uh, it was his league. So that was a whole kerfuffle. But, you know, going back to Pete Rose and gambling, Shoeless Joe Jackson and, you know, the World Series, gambling and sports have this weird relationship that has kind of mutated. Uh, that's one of the many, re well, probably the biggest reason why major sports have not come to Las Vegas until the last decade or so, starting with the NHL and now in the NFL. Allegedly, Seattle and Las Vegas are the next two to get a NBA franchise. Uh, per what I read on the internet. Uh, so that is certainly going to be a huge topic of conversation for this show because it'll be interesting to see how they integrate uh, with with this new platform and whether or not we'll see any inclusion of NFTs or crypto in that. I, both of the arenas both have naming rights already. Climate Pledge in Seattle and the T-Mobile Arena in Vegas. And... It'll be very interesting to see how all of this plays out in terms of esports and fantasy sports and gambling. But there's so many different structures in place now that it makes it so much easier and so many and uh, so very, very, very well thought out in the pro football, pro basketball, you know, national sports sense that I don't know. I'm not as educated on the esports side, but it'd be we'll do our diving and we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. And there's going to be, I mean, I mean, there's going to be quite a lot to talk about. I just thought it was interesting that fantasy sports, that there's fantasy sports of digital sports, which already aren't, in quotations, real sports with, quote, real players. It's more like following the best Twitch streamer who has figured out the way to use an Xbox controller to always pass a digital foot. It's just things are getting very meta and, and <laughs> removed, removed from the real world, even for me, right? Even as like a, a dude who loves Bitcoin and crypto and stuff like that. So I think that that's fascinating. My last question to you, Matt, and we can wrap it up on this, you know, to bring it back globally, do you seriously think that there are any sports right now? Like I'm thinking of an obscure sport, like uh, something that they play in like Thailand or like old school, like downtown Miami, like High Lie, that, that game where you've like have the scoop and the balls and you're throwing it against the, uh, the wall. Are, are there any sports that are excluded from fantasy sports at this point? I was also thinking of tennis. I was like, who's playing fantasy tennis? But then I was like, tennis is super popular. There's fantasy NASCAR. There's so many different things. That, like I've seen fantasy wrestling in the past through different websites. Uh, if, you can, if you can build a system around it, you can do fantasy for it. That's basically where we're at. 
Well, and that makes sense. I think that's a good place to end it here, Matt. As we've uh, kind of notated, we're going to have more than enough to chop it up with next episode. Wanted to thank you again for tuning into the minor leagues where me, Nathan, and my colleague, Matt Ryan, try and move on up to the majors by discussing the intersection of sports and crypto. I didn't even realize, Matt, that this was going to be such a huge topic. It's kind of blown up. We've gotten so many views from our stuff. I'm always glad to have that. But, um, you know, we try and continually stay updated on the crypto market and NFT market. So please listen to our podcast surrounding that. Mine is Crypto Conversations. Matt's is NFT 101, available wherever you get audio content. Matt, I'm going to sign us off for now. Any closing words? Be safe, be well, smart, get smart. There we go. Yeah, do that. that that's the thing you should do. All guys. See you in the next episode. Bye.